Today's sermon text is John 17, 11 to 19. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And as, sorry, and for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Catherine. I want to go ahead and just give you three um, Three ideas that we're going to be touching on this morning because that's a lot of in the world, in the word, and all that kind of stuff. So the terminology can kind of, kind of get a little bit busy. But I want to talk about uh, three overarching ideas that I think link together this whole text. And the first one is this. We have been made one. Everyone who is in Jesus has been made one. We have been constituted into one body, one organism, if you will. Okay, so that's the first thing we're going to talk about. The second thing we're going to talk about is we have access to Jesus's rich joy. Now, notice I say access, meaning you may or may not realize this or live this out in your life, depending on certain things this text talks about. But you have access, if you are in Jesus, you have access to Jesus' joy. So yes, as a born-again person, if you are in fact born again, if you've been made new by Jesus, if you believe in him and are reordering your life around him and his ways, you are one with other believers, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you do. That is one of the miracles of salvation. But the question needs to be asked, are you walking in Jesus' joy? And not all believers do that. And then the third thing we're going to talk about is we can be reshaped by God's word. That's also a statement of potential. You can be reshaped by God's word. Now, when you come to Jesus, you're forgiven. You are cleansed. As a matter of fact, Jesus says in John 15, 3, he says that he cleansed his disciples with his word. This is before Peter betrayed him. This is before all the disciples scattered and left him when he was at his weakest, when he was suffering on the cross. It had nothing to do with their merit, their behavior, or what they did. They were cleansed because Jesus chose them and made them his own. They were cleansed. But that doesn't mean in our lives and in our behavior we change or are reshaped. So I want to say this again. Here's the three things we're talking about. One... In Christ, we are made one, brothers and sisters in Jesus. Two, we have access to Jesus' rich 
joy. We have access to it. Will we walk into it? And three, we can be reshaped by God's word. We can be changed, really, really changed, really changed. So we're going to go ahead and jump on the first one. We have been made one in Jesus. Verses 11 and 12, I'm going to read those again. I can't read them as good as Catherine did with her beautiful Irish accent, but I will read it in my beautiful Southern Act draw. Okay, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Jesus speaking of his disciples. And I am coming to you. He's talking about God the Father. So he says, Holy Father, because I'm coming to you, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except Judas, who was the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is referring to Old Testament prophecy, primarily in the Psalms, in which it was foretold that one of the Messiah's followers would betray him. But it was God's plan to do that. Theologically, I know that's kind of a twisty tie, but that's just what it says. So, just a quick review from last week. Remember how we talked about how Jesus manifested the name of God. When he manifested the name of God, which Jesus claims earlier in this text, what he's saying is this, I think. I have shown you the God who created all of creation. I have shown you who he is. The same God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush and said, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I will do what I will do. There are no limits to me. There are no boundaries to me. There are no categories to describe me. My name is Yahweh, and I've got good news for you, Moses. The children of Israel, whom I hear crying and suffering in Egypt, those are my distinct people. I have chosen them and set my love on them. Jesus is revealing that invisible God in his own flesh. Every time Jesus heals someone, he is showing us and teaching us about Yahweh. Every time Jesus speaks words of truth, he is showing us and teaching us about Yahweh. Every time Jesus restores a broken heart, he is showing us and teaching us about Yahweh God. He is manifesting God. That's what he did. And he will also be manifesting God on the cross who is willing to suffer for us because of our rebellion against him. He is willing to rescue us. He's willing to do that. Jesus is good. God is good. And so when he says, I have manifested my name to my disciples and kept my disciples in my name, what he's saying is this. I am reforming and reshaping these men and these women. I don't think he just had his 12 disciples in mind. He's reshaping all those who pledged to follow him. He's making them different kinds of people. He is manifesting in their lives the virtues of God. Care, gentleness, love, mercy, justice, 
a desire for holiness, a hatred for sin, all of those things that make God who he is in his personality, he is developing those virtues and those characteristics in his followers. He has manifested his name and kept his followers in his name. That's what Jesus does. That's what he does. And he's saying this, I've kept them in your name, and I'm asking God, Holy Father, he says, make them one as we're one. Make them one. Now remember, tomorrow, when Jesus said this, he is going to die. This is Jesus' final prayer before he gives his life for his disciples whom he came to save. This is Jesus' final prayer. And part of the the heart of this final prayer. One of the issues that brings him great concern is not that we go to heaven because he doesn't say that in this final prayer. I would mislead you if I said Jesus didn't care about that. Of course he cares about that. But that's not what Jesus is praying about. Jesus is saying, make them one. Keep them one. One, don't just reshape them morally into better people. Shape them into a new kind of community, a new Israel. In the same way that God rescued Israel enslaved through Moses, Jesus is rescuing us, Israel, the new Israel, enslaved in our sins. This is a new type of burning bush experience. John and the other disciples are within earshot of these words. How else would we have this prayer from Jesus? And they are hearing the heart of Jesus. Jesus is saying not just make sure Larry and Sally and Joey and Margie get to heaven. He is saying make sure that they are one. Holy Father, make them one. Make them one. Make them one. I love the the same John who wrote this. Also, decades later, possibly, wrote 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, I'm going to read these words, and if you've grown up in the church, you've heard them. But I want to challenge you to hear the spoken word of God as though you've never heard it before, church people. You need to learn how to do that. That's a discipline you have to take up. Hearing God's word like you've never heard it before. Now listen to what this same John of John 17 says in 1 John when he's writing to a bunch of churches in Asia full of Gentiles and Jews who are learning how to get along together. He says this, I, I, um, sorry, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. Who do you think he's talking about? Jesus. Don't don't, don't be ashamed. Say it. Some of you are like, Jesus. Jesus. And if you're wrong, it's still good to say Jesus. It's really good to do that. So um, so he's saying, I've touched him. I've been around him. I've heard him. I'm talking about him. So let me, in my introduction, tell you what my entire book of 1 John is going to be about. Now, he didn't name it 1 John. People named it 1 John who read it. They said, this is the first letter from John. This is awesome. Then there was a second one. Then there was a third one. So follow me. 
That's how they came up with these numbering things. And it's really sophisticated. So, um, so he says, that which was from the beginning, Jesus, I've touched, I've heard, I've been with. And then he describes Jesus in verse 2 of 1 John 1. He says, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. So it's not what is eternal life, it's who is eternal life. We have proclaimed to you the eternal life who is Jesus. He is eternal life. That's why John says in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life, that we may know him, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That is eternal life. He is eternal life. And so he says, we want to talk about this in this letter. I want to talk about this in this letter. Then he says this in verse 3. That which we have seen, Jesus, and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may go to heaven. That's not what he says. You would expect him to say that. Because the American gospel, it's got its warts and its flaws, but it says some good stuff, if it's biblical. <laughs> the, the gospel we've been raised in tells us, here's the story of Jesus. He died on the cross, he rose from the dead, so we can go to heaven. And what's interesting is that is rarely said in the New Testament. Rather, he says this, I have touched Jesus. I have listened to Jesus. I have sat at his feet and feasted on his words. And I want you, through my word that I'm repeating that he said, to experience the same. And here's the payoff. We get to be together. We get to be together. Now, if you've been nurtured in the Western church, the American church, you're like, big whoop. I get to be with people? I go to church to get away from people, man. I want to sneak in, sneak out, sing my songs, hear the word, grow in Jesus. Hallelujah, glory. That is not the message of Scripture. That is not the message of the New Testament. The message of the New Testament is God is forming and shaping people who are one in him. People who are one in him. So I want to ask you a question. Because this sets the stage for the rest of this book. We're going to finish the last several verses this Saturday night at our wonderful Christmas Eve service. This, 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 this verse sets the stage for that. So let me ask you a question. In verse 12, Jesus asked God to make his disciples one. How would your relationship with the people of your church change if God answered this prayer in your life? How would your participation, how would your interaction with this local church change if God answered Jesus' prayer, I know, I know, I know. I said earlier, you're already one. But that oneness, if it's not lived out, what's the point? I've got a car in the garage. It's a Lamborghini. You ever driven it? Nope. What's the point? So yes, it's powerful and miraculous and beautiful that all people who follow Jesus are one. I love it that there are people in the Middle East who follow Jesus that I am one with. I don't know them, but I'm one with them, and so are you. That is wonderful. By the way, speaking of the Middle East, welcome. What's your name again? Joseph and Catherine Peer. That's right. These guys are here from 
they live and do wonderful things for God in the Middle East. So, so good to see you guys. Um, I'm really tempted to try to talk them into staying here, but that would be like, you know, don't preach the gospel. So I can't do that. Uh, but we miss you. I miss you. Um, so what would, what would it look like in your life if the effect of you and I, you and each other being one, if that began to manifest in behavior and relationships, how would that change your relationship with this church? And do you think that maybe that's what Jesus wants in our lives? To go from being people who audit sermons, to go from people who sing a couple of songs, to go from people who casually participate, to really living out what Jesus was thinking about and sweating over the night that he was betrayed? What would that look like if we said, you know what, even though the American church looks like this, the scriptures say this, I need to make some changes in my approach. i got to make some changes. Jesus wants this prayer to be answered in your life. Will it? That's up to you. Not God, you. God will not grab you by the scruff of your neck, throw you into a community group. And I'm not even trying to get you to like, this isn't like my plea to try to get you to join a community group, like my crude, cheap ploy to do that. I'm talking about immersing yourself with brothers and sisters in the body of Jesus. Being with one another, connected to one another, serving one another, loving one another, being loved by one another. How would that look in your life if God answered that prayer? So opening challenge, not trying to shame anybody, make you feel bad, make you unhappy, but you know, God's word steps in your toes. Part two, we have access to Jesus's rich joy. Look at verse 13 and 14. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I want my disciples to have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I want that. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. They're different kinds of people now. They're different. Just as I am not of the world. Just as I'm not of the world. Just as I'm not of the world. Now remember, last week we talked about what the word world means in this text. When Jesus says at the end of John 16, leading up to this prayer, I have overcome the world, so don't fear, don't lose heart. He's talking about not, he, he overcame plastic chairs and carpet and metal, uh, metal music stands. That's not what he means by the world. He didn't mean he, it doesn't mean he overcame the Rocky Mountains. It doesn't mean that, that. It means something else. World in this context means this. The world as it has rebelled against God. The world as it has chosen darkness rather than light. The world which has organized itself in opposition to the creator. When Jesus says that we're hated by the world, that's the world he's talking about. A world that has organized itself deliberately in opposition to the creator. And at the beginning of verse 13, he says something interesting. 
I am speaking these words into the world. You think Jesus means I'm just preaching and teaching? No, he's saying that my teaching, me speaking the word of God, is more than just a sermon. It's more than just a lecture. It is a cosmic battle between me and the forces of darkness that oppress people. It is a cosmic battle between Yahweh, who I am manifesting, and the systems of darkness that oppress people. It is a cosmic battle between me, the one true God, Jesus is saying, and the sin and the deception and the greed and the lust and the brokenness that controls us and is the engine of our behavior. It is me against that. I am speaking my word into that world. This is violent. This is attacking. This is opposition. This is resisting. I am doing this. And he says that as he was speaking his word into the world, his disciples heard that word and believed. Not only did they hear it and believe, in verse 7 it says that they believe that all the things that God has given Jesus are from God. The authority that Jesus has to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to forgive sins, to cleanse with his words. That authority was given to him by God. They believe, according to verse 8, that Jesus is running the universe. My paraphrase. They believe this. This is what his disciples believe. So as he speaks his word into the cosmos, into the world, the rebellious world, what's happening is something wonderful and beautiful and strange. Jesus' words are excavating this dark world. I know that sounds really cool, but it's just sort of a picture that I thought would help. He's excavating this world. He's loosening the dirt. He's spreading the dirt out, and he's finding these hidden gems called disciples. People who, when they hear his word, life happens inside of their spirit. And some people hear it, and nothing happens. I can't explain that. But there are disciples who are hearing his word, and the lights are turning on inside of their heads. I belong to Jesus. He has authority over all things. He is sent from God. Everything that he has at his disposal was given to him by God. He has manifested Yahweh, the same God who approached Moses at the burning bush. The cosmic, eternal, history-altering God, that's who Jesus is. Man, that is fun to preach. He's excavating this world, looking for his people. But he says something really troubling in the next verse. That people who've been found saved. Anybody here saved? Raise your hand. Y'all are so timid. (laughs) Am I? I don't know. You may not know. Okay, so don't raise your hand if you don't know. But are you saved? Raise your hand. If you're saved. If you are... Some of y'all swear. You just... I know you're saved and you won't do it. You will not, you will not humor me. I'm, I'm, God is using you in my life to make me a better person. So um, I love you. In faith, I love you. So, um, so you're saved, right? You're saved. 
Because he says about people who are saved, the world's going to hate you. Saved people don't feel very safe in this text. What's up with that? Go back and listen to Ron's message from two weeks ago. He teases that out. I don't have time to. But he says about people who are saved, he doesn't promise us that the world's going to be fixed and be awesome. What he does say is that if they really get this stuff, they can have my joy fulfilled in them. Whoa. My joy. My joy can be fulfilled in them. Um, for a long time, I couldn't relate to that, what the difference between like joy and happiness. I've heard people say that joy is spiritual. Happiness is like physical. And I'm like, well... How do you know if you have joy then? I, I, I was never been able to understand that, like the difference between joy and happiness. Like, what does that look like? And, and, and it was because I didn't suffer. I'm convinced. I hadn't really suffered. Like, in my life, I haven't. I haven't um, had a tragic experience with, like, a loved one really, really close to me. I mean, you know, my, my, great, great, my, my grandmother passed away 20 years ago uh, in, just a couple, in just a few weeks, and that was hard. But I mean, something that was like, led me into a dark night of the soul. I've never had that. Some of you have. Um, but one thing that's happened to me over my life that's been really interesting has been to watch the movements of my heart over the last 20 years. Um, I remember being in Bible college at 18 and 19 and praying prayers and about, you know, with absolute, out of total naivete, but pure-heartedness, Lord, I want to change the world. I want to do something great for you. And I meant those prayers. I really did. But I was thrust into full-time ministry, like, way too soon. Because when I'm talking to people who are suffering, I don't have words of life for them. And I'm not saying you have to go through what people have been through in order to minister to them. I don't believe that. But at the same time, I had not been tried and tested and my character had not been formed in such a way that I knew how to endure, I knew how to persevere, um, I knew how to fight fair. And in the kingdom of God, fighting fair means fighting in love. I didn't know how to do that. That was, that was completely foreign to me. And what happens in ministry is something that happens to a lot of pastors because a lot, of, a lot of time people don't say what happens in pastors' lives. Um, I've heard therapists who write books say that some of the most dysfunctional souls on the planet are pastors. Because pastors are put in a position, and this isn't like my sob story. I'm not trying to get you to like cry and give more in the offering or something. I'm just saying this is me, okay? Um, so what happened in my life was over the years, because I was given power, and platform at an early age, I was also alone at an early age. Because people in the Western church expect me and expect preachers to say profundities every sermon and wow them and continue to air up the tire of their faith to keep them going down the road a little further. And the demand of that is wearying. It's really wearying. Ask any preacher that. It's wearying. And to have stories where you're interacting with people that you've been pouring into, and then sometimes the slightest offense obliterates the relationship. And so pastors have a lot of people that they love leave them. And it happens to everybody, every preacher, every preacher. 
leave them. And so over a while, that has a deformative impact on your soul. And I got to a place a couple of years ago where I was really depressed. I didn't know I was depressed, but I was. I felt alone. I was broken. And two years ago this month, I got an invitation from a guy named Elliot Grudem to join this thing called the Leaders Collective, which was a small cohort of pastors, six of us. And we would gather together every couple of months in one of our cities, Raleigh or Atlanta or D.C. or St. Louis or Memphis, and we would come together for three days. And Elliot, who, is a, who has become one of my mentors, uh, shepherded us for two years and helped us to get our souls back on the road and learn how to fight for joy. Because this world is tragic. It's hard to live in. And I know that's true of your life. And what God has tasked me to do and our other elders is to help you and encourage you as you are finding your way down this road of tragic life. And I didn't know how to do that very well. I didn't know how to do that. And so I found myself having experiences that Elliot would curate, and they will be too long to describe here, where God was healing me. And God was restoring me. And God was giving me hope. And God was restoring my vision to do great things. Not be the Superman of Christianity, but, but killing my idealism. But at the same time, longing to be a fruitful minister of the gospel. And whatever fruit God puts on my tree is up to him. 30, 60, 100 fold, that's him. That's his deal. But my job is to avail myself of him. And so what happened has been interesting. Something surprising took place in my life. Jesus didn't take all the things away from me that made me feel tense in the inside. Jesus didn't take away all the things that, that it felt like was undermining my faith and my trust in him. He didn't take away those things. Jesus did not take away. He was like there was one footprint, set of footprints in the sand behind me. And Jesus said, I carried you. You know, I'm kidding. So um, it, was, it kind of felt that way. What happened was, was that my prayers and my yearnings changed because I'm still living in a tragic world. We all are. And my yearnings went from Jesus, please deliver me from this situation, this circumstance, to something more beautiful. And I can sum it up in really just a couple of ways. He has given me an intense yearning for the presence of God like I've not had in, I think, decades. And the other thing that he gave me that really surprised me is he gave me an intense yearning to know you and be known by you. Like, not play preacher, but, like, really know you. And I know, I know there's, like, several hundred of you sitting here, and I can't be BFS with everybody in here. I know that. I know that. And I feel bad at times because I can't do that. But I do know this, that all of our elders have been tasked and our leaders to cultivate communities, small communities. And I made a decision. I'm going to be known as much as I can be known by my staff because if we're going to go to battle together, they've got to know me and my community group. I wish I could be in a community group with all 400 members of our church. 600 on Easter. I wish. <laughs> I really wish. 
but I can't. I can't. And I carry some guilt because of that. I feel that. But I'm committed to being really known by my community group, which are made up of just normal members of our church, ordinary folks who are here. It's not a bunch of preachers and teachers and full-time ministers. It's people who are, who are more mature than me, I feel at times, or at least in some ways, and people who are several steps behind me. It doesn't even matter to me. I just want to be known. And for the first time in my life, like over the last six to eight months, I feel 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 in a really profound and visceral way. I want to be known, and I want to know people, and I want to be with Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. I don't want to be with other things anymore. This world is tragic. And what I didn't realize was all those years that I thought I was seeking joy, I was seeking happiness. And the pursuit of happiness, this is what it left me with. The pursuit of happiness left me with a deformed soul. Bitterness, anger, depression. The pursuit of happiness left me with sin and addiction. And the pursuit of happiness left me with story after story of broken relationships. Some of those were my fault, some of them weren't. But we didn't have a language of community and fellowship and love in those relationships, and so it was bound to fail. Why? Because we live in a tragic world. And I need a language of love and reconciliation in my relationships. You do too. You do too. So I want to ask you, as you look back over your life, are you pursuing joy or are you pursuing happiness? Because this is what Jesus says, this is what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus and joy. You can read about this in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all the people who have gone to heaven, who have died in Christ, they are watching us from the grandstands of heaven. He says this, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him. Jesus knew he lived in a tragic world. And rather than seeking happiness and medicating with addictive stuff, and the broken things of our world, Jesus said, no, I reject this. I will live through this world as a full-hearted God-man. And I will live with people. And I'll be with people. And I'll let people be with me. And I'm going to suffer for them and suffer with them because there is a joy out there that is better than the happiness of this world. This is what John is saying in John 17. This is what Jesus is saying. I want them to have my joy fulfilled in them. This is what Jesus means. They live in a tragic world. They live in a world that hates them. I keep them in your word. Lord, make them one. And then we get to the third part where Jesus says, sanctify them by your word. Verse 17 through 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He didn't say, I'm delivering them from the world. I'm taking them out of the world. I'm sending them into the world. In the same way that I sent my word into the world in a cosmic fight, I now send my disciples into the world to fight a cosmic fight to continue to excavate the ground of this world and to reveal new disciples and followers of Jesus. I send them. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Jesus is saying, for their sake, for them to be fruitful, I set myself apart for the work of God. I set myself apart. He's speaking of the cross here. For their sake... I set myself apart to be killed on a tree for them. That they may also be sanctified by the truth. This is amazing. Looking back, the runway is right over there. I see it, the little strip. Um, verse 6, Jesus said his disciples kept his word after hearing it. In verse 7, Jesus says his disciples believed everything that he said, every word that came out of his mouth, that he was from the Father, and they believed that. He said that his disciples believed that he was not only from the Father, but sent by the Father, the manifestation of the Father. If you want to see the Father, look at Jesus. That's what he looks like. He is the image of the invisible God, the writer of Hebrews says. Verse 8, Jesus says that his disciples believed. And so here's my question. Jesus is saying, I want them to be sanctified with the truth. I want them, my disciples, to be reshaped by the truth. If you don't believe what his disciples believed, it's not going to happen. If you don't believe that Jesus is from the Father... That he is a manifestation of Yahweh. If you do not believe that everything Jesus did was blessed by God and anointed by God. If you don't believe that when you look at Jesus, you see God. There's no way you can be sanctified by Jesus' words. It's not going to happen. I'm not saying you should never doubt. If you want to hear a good message on that, listen to Denise's from a few weeks ago. That was amazing. I was sitting at lunch this week with another preacher in the city. He was like, dude, can you send her to my church to preach? And I'm like, wait, I thought you were asking me to come preach. And I was like, <laughs> he really does. So anyway, I'll tell you later. Um, <laughs> to be sanctified is to be reshaped by God. How does God reshape us? Say it louder. You're right. His word. His word. Doesn't say church services. Now, his word is the center of our church service. So this is a big, this is big. I'm not saying this isn't meaningful. From the first days the Christian faith existed, the apostles practiced a tradition. Rather than gathering in a Jewish synagogue on Saturday, they moved their weekly gathering to Sunday. Because every week they celebrated Easter, the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. It is my hearty belief, and I think academically you can back this up, 
that when the apostles talk about maintaining and holding to the tradition of the apostles, that part of that is Sunday morning, Lord's Day gathering together to worship Yahweh, manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. I believe that with all of my heart. I don't think you should ever miss Sundays unless you've got a really, really good excuse. I don't. I'm not shaming anybody here. I'm not saying you're in sin if you miss Sunday. What I'm saying is, is that we should gather on the Lord's Day to remember that on the Lord's Day 2,000 years ago, a God-man rose from the dead, and we worship him. And we don't gather to get something out of it. We gather to give. We worship him. We worship him. We worship him. It takes the pressure off music and preaching, that's for sure, you know, having to wow people all the time. But there's a big problem here when we talk about God's word being the center of your life. Because our learned approach in, in American Christianity to God's word is this. And you can find this in all of our Bible devotionals. You can find this in all of our Bible studies. The DVD curriculum that we study. You can find it on the, the inbox, the encouraging word delivered to your inbox every day from such and such a ministry. The assumption is this, and it's terrible. It's doing damage to us. That God's word is a little deal that needs to be worked in. Just find a way to stick it in your life. Find a few minutes in the day to read God's word. Follow this three-day Bible study on Jesus and joy. No condemnation. I do you version Bible studies too. I know I make fun of that sometimes, but I do too. But the assumption is, is that all we need is a shot in the arm each day. Isn't it? Christian thinkers are trying to find a way to make Jesus bite size. How can we core this out and dumb it down so it's easy to follow Jesus? And this is the same Jesus who said, pick up your cross and follow me. The way that we do faith in the West completely undermines the teachings of Scripture, in my opinion. In my opinion. Because as long as we're trying to find a way to make Jesus bite size, man, we are never going to have the developed perseverance to endure a bad marriage. We won't. A bite-sized Jesus won't fix a bad marriage. A bite-sized Jesus won't deliver you from porn. A bite-sized Jesus won't turn you from a mean-spirited person to someone who is gentle and kind. A bite-sized Jesus won't do that. A bite-sized Jesus will never dethrone Republican or Democratic politics in your life. They will co-opt Jesus. They will make Jesus part of their message. A bite-sized Jesus is a waste of time. He is all or he's nothing. Okay, so what do I do, Chris? I mean, that's like, real, like major um, platitudes you're talking with here. Because here's the counter-objection. Chris, I hate reading. I don't want to read. I don't know how to get anything out of the Bible. I don't know what to do. 
And every time I read, I get bored or I fall asleep and my mind wanders and then something else happens. I quit reading the Bible and then here's where I am again. I'm ashamed. And I don't even want to go to church because I feel like I fail at Christianity every day because I think tons of people in the church feel this. Tons of people. Here's what I would like to submit to you. I touched on this last week. The runway's closer. We're like eight miles out. So uh, in plain years, that's really close. All right, so... um, I mentioned last week that when Jesus is talking about his word, he's not talking about opening the family Bible on the coffee table. Nobody had those. Nobody had a scroll of Isaiah in their living room. Let's read Isaiah 55, and the snow falls down from heaven. Nobody had that. Now, we have an advantage. We do have Bibles. I am not suggesting we shouldn't read the Bible. I am suggesting this. Maybe rather then devote yourself to another Bible study that you're going to quit reading in February. Because we've all read Genesis and Exodus 5,000 times. <laughs> Leviticus rolls around, we're like, yep, I'm taking this month off. I'm done. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. And like, what? What am I supposed to do with that? I'm going to ask you to do something different. And this is counterintuitive because all the people out there are saying, read your Bible every day. I'm going to say, maybe you shouldn't feel the pressure to do that. I'm not saying phone it in and quit reading the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. If you're literate and you can read and learn that way, then by all means, read the Bible. But when you do read the Bible, quit reading it to get something out of it. Take the pressure off yourself. Just read it. And if something, some epiphany doesn't happen tomorrow morning when you're reading, you know, Exodus 13, that's okay. It's okay. Just develop the habit of reading it. No pressure. If you're a person that just absolutely despises reading, that's cool too. Here's what I'm telling everybody in this room. What would happen to our church, our oneness as disciples... If when we all gather together, you didn't put the pressure on me to change you. But you came as learners. You came with a pen in hand and paper, and you began to write down and make notes, and you leaned in. So even on my, because I'm going to hit a few, you know, I'm going to hit a few pop flies next year. Could be 50 pop flies next year. I don't know. I could hit a lot of them. But I mean, I may miss at times. Ron may miss at times. Whoever's preaching may miss at times. That's irrelevant. What if we all came together at church and we determined together, I'm going to get into God's word. I'm going to dive into this text with that brother or that sister who's preaching. And then, rather than walking away from it and forgetting about it, maybe read through your notes once or twice that week. And then maybe by Friday, listen to the sermon again when you're driving around. And then by Sunday morning, you're ready because you actually remember what the name of the series is. (laughs) Because the assumption behind preaching in series is that we know one sermon is not going to fix you. We're trying to facilitate a change of thinking, which is why we preach in series. But the series isn't going to do you any good if you listen to it, and the next time you even think about it is seven days later. You're not going to change. 
And if you hear me saying anything, please don't hear me fussing at you. Hear me saying this, I love you, I care for you, I want you to grow in Jesus. And so I'm asking you, what would it look like if you just decided from this point forward, you're not going to feel guilt and shame over having a crummy prayer life and not reading the Bible very much. But you actually did what the, what the disciples did 2,000 years ago. They gathered together, they heard God's word, they thought about it, they engaged God's word, they went home, thought about how they could follow God's word. They, if you have a chance, listen to it again later in the week and then come to church on Sunday and hear God's word again. And just believe that God's going to change you. I really believe you would change. I think it would dramatically impact our church. I think it would have huge resonance in relationships, in your worship of God. If you devoted yourself to being here on Sundays, leaning into God's word, and whether or not the temperature is hot or cold in this room, you dig into God's word with me. I think it would change us. There's a writer named James K.A. Smith. He wrote a book called You Are What You Love. Amazing. I've decided I'm going to read it three times. I told Ron, I'm going to read it three times. I'm going to master this book. It has been the single most influential book in my thinking in the last, I think, five years. It's amazing. Uh, James K.A. Smith, You Are What You Love. He says this, The church, the body of Christ, is the place where God invites us to renew our loves, to reorient our desires, and retrain our appetites. Indeed, isn't the church where we are nourished by the word, where we eat the word and receive the bread of life? The church is that household where the spirit feeds us what we need and where, by his grace, we become a people who desire him above all else. Christian worship is the feast where we acquire new hungers for God and for what God desires, and are then sent, sanctified, into his creation to act accordingly. That was a mouthful. If you want that quote, I can send it to you. Just email me. But I want you to change in this coming year. I want you to be reshaped. I want you to know the difference between happiness and joy, and for your life to find itself in the cradle of God's joy. I want you to know what it's like to be reshaped by God's word, really changed by it. So quit starting new devotional studies. Come together as a body of believers, as one people made one together, and let's dig in God's word together and just wait patiently. Weeks will go by. Months will go by. But at some point, you're going to notice something beautiful take place in your life like I did with me. God, I long for your presence. And God, I long to be with your people. Really know them. Not just, not just sing songs with them, but know them. Be close to them. I want to know their sadness. I want to know their hurt. I want to know their gladness and their joy. I want to know that. Jesus, you are good. You are always good. And I pray in your name, Lord God, in your name, that we would be sanctified. I thank you for your word, your word that reshapes us and renews us. And I pray, God, that if there's any heart that's here 
that is resistant, Lord Jesus, to the gospel, I pray that that person would trust you, take a step of faith, and be welcomed into the, commi- the communion of the saints, into the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name.